everybody, it's me, Izzy. Lo and behold, we made it to the podcast world. The audio track you're about to hear right now was recorded live on YouTube. If you want to see it, you can go to the YouTube channel on Izzyverse, and you'll be able to catch that video. Thanks for supporting. Enjoy the show. Van Lente is the co-founder, along with Ryan Delavia, I know I messed that up, of Evil Twin Comics, which produced his um, his and Duvali's nonfiction, and the first and most famous is Action Philosophers. He's also done work on The Incredible Hercules with Greg Pak, Marvel Zombies 3, Marvel Zombies 4, X-Men Noir, Marvel Zombies Return, also co-created Power Man, the new Power Man, Victor Alvarez, Shadowland, uh, a lot of good stuff, and award-winning writer as well. So let me welcome to you, Mr. Fred Van Lente. How are you? I'm good. How are you, man? I'm doing great. First thing I have to say, and this is what my wife pointed it out, your name on the lights. I love it. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it sensed my presence. That's, wow, good eye. And is that Nicolas Cage on the other side? Well, yeah, it's Modoc. It's Modoc and his best friend, Nicholas Cage. <laughs> That's great. Like yeah, she's here. Good. So, so we got a lot to talk about. But first and foremost, welcome, Fred. How Thank how's you. everything? No complaints. Yeah. So what what we're gonna do right now is I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions here. We'll we'll chit chat as we go. But the question I always ask my creators is, how did they start? How did they get into comics? What was the moment of truth, I guess you could say, or all that other stuff? The well, origin I mean, story. In other yeah, words. I mean, I, my dad, for his, I was just looking at it recently. I have a copy of it here in my office. Uh, they, he had was given for his birthday, or maybe it was Christmas, 1966, so six years before I was born, uh, this book called The Great Comic Book Heroes that was by this great cartoonist, Jules Pfeiffer, who started out working in the golden age comic shops with Will Eisner. And so he, he, he had this essay in the New Yorker. This was like 66, obviously. So this is when uh, the Adam West Batman TV show came out. Right. And this is when the Galactus trilogy in fantastic four came out. So comics were very much in the zeitgeist. So he had did this very well received article that then they reprinted in book form with a bunch of like golden age comic superhero origins. So there was like Namor and Captain America and the spirit and Batman, and Superman, Wonder Woman, all your favorites. And so I'd make my mom read this to me uh, over and over again until finally she just threw her hands up. And I think her brain was melting. She was like enough already kid, find some other book. So I just stared at the book and at the pictures and at the words uh, until I sort of put the together so I could read at a relatively early age, thanks to comics. Um, and really, I've been kind of hooked ever since. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite characters growing up? It's a big Spider-Man guy that he was probably my favorite. I related to him though, so it was definitely very cool to be able to write amazing um, Spider-Man and Web of Spider-Man and all the other Spider-Men. <laughs> uh, I loved um, Doctor Strange quite a lot. And more, another Ditko influence there. I was really into like. Uh, I really was into like getting into things on the ground level. So I really loved alpha flight. Mm-hmm. I remember discovering that in an earlier age that sort of blew my mind uh, that a comic could be that sort of dysfunctional and dark. Um, I loved firestorm for some reason. It's a cool looking character. 
He's a cool looking character, but his series in the eighties was just not good. <laughs> uh, when, uh, but I bought every issue for some reason. I, I really like Batman and the outsiders. Mm-hmm. Another comic I read recently that I was like, it, it doesn't hold up. Right. I don't know what I was doing there. 10 year old. But it was one of those books that it, it was definitely firestorm Batman. They were, they were just eighties books. That, that that were like a right. big deal back in the, the Batman and the Outsiders was one in particular. Well, at least Batman and the Outsiders had Jim Aparo and then Alan Davis. Mm-hmm. Firestorm did not. <laughs> Firestorm <laughs> had the cartoon. Pat Broderick and then a bunch of people. Yeah, him. but it had the cartoon. So the Super Friends, he was one yes, of the Yes, I love the guys. Super Friends. I love the so, Super Friends. Because uh, when he was introduced, it was like, I remember as a kid seeing that cartoon, that particular one, that was really exciting to see firestorm because like it was firestorm and cyber that came out during that time frame i feel like firestorm was all was introduced the season before cyborg and cyborg was introduced yeah they were they were they were close together yeah they were close because they were both teen characters and things like that yeah i've never i mean i've never understood dc's desire to make cyborg a thing outside of the new teen titans i just don't get it I am with you on that. I, I see him as a Titan character more than a justice leaguer character. And, right. and it's like cyborg is there to replace Martian Manhunter, which I want to see Martian Manhunter more than I want to see cyborg, nothing against sure. cyborg in particular. But I, again, I see team Titans. I see George Perez. I see Mark right. Wolfman. I see that when I see cyborg, I don't see him as a justice leaguer. But that's what they they've been pushing, and I'm fine with it. I don't, I'm, I'm not totally against it. I just I want Martian. I want my Martian. You for know what I mean? Arm for that matter. Yeah, and Firestone would be great. Even they did do him in the um, in the Arrowverse. I remember they did they did a, oh, a yeah. version of him, which wasn't so bad. It was pretty good. Cool. All right. So let's talk a little bit about one of your earlier works, and more importantly. Action Philosophers is yes. one of your earlier works. I want to hear more about Action Philosopher because I was reading this this morning and into the afternoon in my train ride. I was reading the other books, the the history, history oh, of cool. comics. So I was reading that, but I didn't, and then I got to look at Action Philosophers. So tell me a little bit about Action Philosophers. Well, Action Philosophers is the uh, is history's a list brain trust told in a hip and humorous comic fashion. Uh, basically Ryan and I did a funny Nietzsche strip for an anthology we didn't get into. And then we found that people really reacted to it. Well, so we ended up doing 320 pages of philosophy comics, which surprised even us. It was very popular. And, uh, and it's kind of never gone into print. I mean, we are currently kickstarting a, uh, well, not literally currently, we do, we are with the cover you just showed on screen is from the Kickstarter of the first volume in color, mm-hmm. Hooked on Classics. Later this year, uh, in conjunction with our pals at Rocketship, we'll be kickstarting volume two, Omnipotence for Dummies, which will sort of move the story. Hooked on Classics, as the name implies, is like classical and medieval and religious philosophers, and then the hook and then Omnipotence for Dummies gets us slightly more into the modern era. So what was the idea behind doing that in particular when you guys, because a lot of your work is very historical because you're a historian. Sure. So, mm-hmm. But what what I personally loved about the, the other book that I was reading was how funny it was, right? Like, like there, there, there's, it, there's a lot of humor in it, 
but at the same time, what's what's perfect about it, and you know, obviously you you guys are award winning for that for that that same reason is the fact that as a kid I could read about history and enjoy it <laughs> instead right. of instead of reading a textbook that just bores me and makes me fall asleep. Right. So what was the idea behind making those books in particular? Well, I mean, you know, I, I've always enjoyed reading about real life things. You know, I, I know people have a tendency to sort of lump that into the educational space. I just like, I just think history is really interesting. So, and entertain as entertaining, uh, and often, if not more so than the fictional, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm kind of a wise ass. And so is Ryan, uh, he grew, we both grew up loving like mad magazine and stuff. Uh, and one year, this convention near DC called SPX was doing an anthology for um, to, to do a fundraiser, and it was biographies. And we we're trying to get get into this anthology. We were unknown at the time, and uh, and so we thought it would be cute. Like I had the idea of like because I was reading some Nietzsche at the time because that's what you do when you're in your twenties, uh, and I thought it was a cute idea to do like. Uh, this is like the, the mini Frederick Nietzsche comic you got with your Frederick Nietzsche action figure, as they used to do, as you may recall, with the He-Man, the Masters of the Universe. Mm-hmm. Hence the term action philosophers, action figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and yeah, and so that was the idea. And like I said, uh, it's proved surprisingly modern. Yeah, it, it, and the artwork's great. So Ryan's artwork is yeah, fantastic. Ryan's fantastic. And we're still making comics. I, I am this week. Writing the latest installment of the action series, which is action activists, which we're doing for the New York City school system. Awesome. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this one in particular. I saw okay. it and it, it's t- I just started laughing because, again, it's taking right wing. Obviously, it's a play on politic political characters. But at the same right. time, what I see a real American hero, the, the first thing I thought in my head was G.I. Joe. Sure. Another <laughs> title I've written. <laughs> yes. And I, I did see that. Um, snake eye. I saw one with a snake eyes cover, which I love that cover, by the way. Um, talk to me a little bit about right, white, right wing. So, uh, right wing. So Steve Ellis and I, uh, who like Ryan and I, we both went to Syracuse university. We, uh, this is for the exact same SBX anthology that, uh, we tried to get into with Action Fossils just the year before. Maybe it was the two years before. Anyway, I tried three times to get in this SBX anthology and failed every time. Uh, but each time was sort of a parody of a kind of comic, right? And we did, like, if you've ever seen those Jack Chick comics, right? The religious mm-hmm. uh, comics. We did one of those, but for Cthulhu, for H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. Mm-hmm. And, so, and actually, if you go on my website to fredvanlander.com, which is, I imagine, where you saw Right Wing, uh, you you find the why we're here and, and it's cute because it kind of yeah i saw i saw the i remember yeah, the little so, check so yeah check that out on, on fredvanlady.com but yeah right wing is a is a parody by me and steve of superhero comics but but as done from a ridiculously over the top right wing perspective that we did that in 2000 i want to say 2001 and so mm-hmm. two decades later i the satire i imagine is gonna be lost on a lot of people Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine there's some people who just, who just read it now and think it's an actually a serious thing, so, which mm-hmm. is vaguely terrifying. Yeah, that is true. And, it, it, you know, at the same time with all the stuff that's going on, like in particular, you, you got books like The Boys and, um, you know, the, the TV shows where they're, they're, they're putting in political, you know, ideologies with comics and things like that. That's, I guess sure. you guys were a little bit ahead of your time when it came to that. Um, even though there was stuff beforehand, like um, I'm thinking about Howard Chatwood's book. I can't remember the title. 
um, in particular. Sure, um, there's American flag by American Eric flag. Yes, there's um, uh, uh, there's martial law. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah, so it wasn't for one of the boys. Yeah, since his job was to kill superheroes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he did a good job with some of it, and, and I I love his Punisher. I got to give Ennis his credit. Credit with credits due. I love his Punisher. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so speaking of Punisher and speaking of his company, we have books for Marvel. So you started working in Marvel. Um, obviously, this is just a small sample of the work you've you've done. You've done so much. Um, mm-hmm. What I've noticed was that there was a lot of collaboration with Greg, Greg Pak, um, in particular with certain books. With um, a couple of books, yeah. Yeah. So how was that, you know, because I want to talk a little bit about your writing in, in particular, but how was it working with Greg as, I guess you could say, a co-writer in certain things? Did you guys have powwow meetings? Did, did you say, I'm going to write this this many pages and he's going to write that many pages? Yeah, you know, more or less. Uh, he does not live that far from me. Mm-hmm. So we're able to meet in person, which is always great. Uh, we just hung out a couple weeks ago, in fact. Uh, yeah, it was all, it was a very productive and fruitful relationship and really, you know, incredible Hercules uh, really kind of put me on the map. So uh, it's very generous of him. Like he could have like dug in his heels and, and since he was a much bigger deal than I was and said, no, I don't want to work with a co-writer, but he sort of like, we hit it off and, and it worked out to both of our benefits, I think. Yeah, and then you, you also had a chance to talk to each other about really the the Hulk universe, if we'll call it, right? With She-Hulk. Hercules was technically, it, it was the Incredible Hulk's title, that was just morphed into Hercules, right? right? Exactly. At so the end it, of World War Hulk, mm-hmm. the wasn't he was dead. It was that Bruce Banner was imprisoned, and then there was another Hulk, and so then there was just a Hulk title, and Incredible Hulk was just lying around, and so Marvel gave it to us as Hercules. And originally it was supposed to be a four issue mm-hmm. arc, and it would end, or it would have set up like a team book with the. Um, heroes who allied with Hulk during the World War Hulk event, but it ended up being a huge hit, so that we continued it for a couple of years after that. Yeah, it, it had a good run. Um, I remember I remember when that book came, beautiful covers. Art Adams did a lot of the covers, mm-hmm. which personal favorite. John Romita Jr. John Romita Jr. So you guys you guys had some really good, te- you had strong oh, yeah. talent behind you. Absolutely. Um, with that with that book, which really would consider, many people would have considered to be a B-list character at that time. But you guys elevated it to the point yep. that it was a it was a popular book. And well, yeah, you know, I mean, I grew up in like the late or I was a teenager, like the late 80s when you had people like Grant Morrison revitalizing Doom Patrol and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sandman and Swamp Thing and all that stuff. And I'm not saying Hercules was at that level, but mm-hmm. that was I got to do sort of the, my reinvention of a classic kind of superhero character. And that was mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. Did you get a chance to see the door trailer today? I did. Yes. What do you thought? What's your thoughts on it? Because it, I immediately thought of Hercules when I saw that one scene. It looked like Zeus. I was going to say it looks like Zeus does make an appearance. I think that I think we knew that already. I think they announced that, that was that, that was Russell Crowe. Yeah, maybe it was Russell Crowe. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm sure they're just going to kill him off. This <laughs> is some <laughs> idea of what the. So let's not get too excited. Let, I'm let's excited it, to see another another let, Taiko Atiti Thor. That's what I'm excited for. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, it was very cool to see Amadeus Cho's mother, Helen Cho, appear in uh, Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron, which was cool, and Marvel was cool. Got me and Greg nice passes for that, and that was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, um, the previous Watiti 
Thor movie was kind of a loose adaptation of Greg's Planet Hulk storyline, which was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the bottom line, I mean, I'd love to see Incredible Hercules adapted, but I, but unfortunately, we, the Marvel brand got bought by a company with its own Hercules property. So yeah, I think, I think the odds of that are fairly <laughs> slim. We might get to see Herc perhaps fall under the axe of Gore the God Butcher in in yeah and thunder but that's 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 my level of expectation for that yeah. not you got me thinking about that now you know get to see but, get but to then see i never thought you know monica rappuccini and her daughter the scorpion would appear in a stop motion claymation hulu show so <laughs> anything can happen it, it is it is a strange time period where we could watch shows like moon knight miss marvel you know and just titles that you just never thought you'll see like Hickmon- hit monkey or Modoc having his own series. It's like, you didn't, you never saw, you never thought of that. Yeah. The Even one, 10 years what, ago. Uh, what Nicholas cage is attached to um, my hand is being mirrored. So I can't point in the right direction. <laughs> what Nicholas cage is attacked attached to behind me is this nice box of Modoc swag that Hulu sent me when the, when the show <laughs> came out, which was cool. Like, there was like a aim stress ball that my cat likes to destroy and like, now, thermos and stuff. Now you did. I did look around to see what work works you did, and you, you do have like a large um, bibliography of books that you did. But what I did you what say I that like it's a bad thing? No, 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 no. That's a great thing. No, but what I did notice from the the group is there's very little DC work. Correct. Right. In fact, I think I only was able to find one piece of work. Yes. which was like a holiday special. Is that correct? It is. In fact, I have a. Nick Dragata drew that, and he very kindly gave me the splash from that, and I'm currently looking at it. It's hanging over my desk uh, above my computer. But yeah, um, DC, I did one, I did that little story for them, and then immediately after that, uh, Marvel signed me to an exclusive, and uh, I was there, I was exclusive for two years, and it's just never, uh, we've talked about some things, but never, nothing's ever gotten off the ground. Are there any DC characters that you would like to do someday? Oh, sure. I was I love with the Kirby characters, like the demon and Mr. Miracle and stuff like that. I mean, the DC characters are a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of my all time favorite titles are like Su- suicide squad would be super fun. Actually. Um, I love the eighties the book and I really enjoyed the, the James Gunn movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the other one? The question. I don't think I'd want to do the question, but the question may be my all time favorite. The original uh, question, but not Montoya. No, well, not the original question, Steve Ditko, the original mm-hmm. question, then when Dennis Cohen and Denny mm-hmm. O'Neill did. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Zombies. Marvel Zombies is a big one. <laughs> a lot of zombies. It's true. All right. Um, is is zombie craze still active today or is it finally dying down? Of course I don't know, you. man. We've been, I'm... Let's see here. I did Marvel Zombies 3, which is four issues, and I did Marvel Zombies 4, four issues, five issues, ten. ten. Then I did the special. So I did 4, 8, 12, 13 is the special. Then I did two. So I did 16. I've done 16 zombie comics. Uh, Assuming Dynamite Never Dies, number five comes out as scheduled, a comic I haven't written yet. I've done 15 issues. No, I've done 16 issues of Diamond Dynamite, which is the Dynamite Comics zombie crossover thing so uh, by the time the current dynamite series ends i will have done as many dynamites as i did marvel zombies 16 Mm -hmm. 
Why, why do you like zombies so much? Are you just, you're good I at writing don't. them? <laughs> I don't actually personally like zombies that much. I've seen a lot of the movies. Like, I love, I mean, there's a bunch of zombie movies I love, like 20 Days Later and Train to Do Busan and Not a Living Dead is an all-time classic. And There's a bunch of great zombie movies. I just think it's a genre that people can't get enough of. It It is a genre where you force characters. I love putting characters if you ask me what i like doing more than anything else it's not the history it's not the humor it's putting characters in extremely difficult situations and seeing how they get out of it mm -hmm. and really the zombie thing uh, uh an enemy that can't be reasoned with that can multiply ad infinitum at any moment um your own best friends can turn against you i just think it's a very primal genre that it, it, weirdly every time i think oh god zombies again and but i find myself coming with new ideas so it's it's a ductile enough genre you know that you can do it and obviously i've done both marvel zombies and dynamite i've done z nation the comics for the sci-fi show uh i did a parody of the walking dead called the mocking dead for dynamite that was super <laughs> fun uh, that max dunbar did a great job with the art on and i know i'm forgetting one I've written zombie video games like Dead, Dead, uh, uh, Dying Light. So a lot of, lot of zombies, <laughs> a lot of zombies. Yeah, you're right though. I remember watching Walking Dead, Walking Dead in its heyday, um, and saying, "How is he going to get out of this? Or how he's going to get out of that?" And that, that was the draw, really, right? Yeah. Um, besides the storytelling, which was pretty, which was pretty strong, but it was really about. You know, that one moment is like, okay, he's underneath the garbage. And you're just thinking about it. The, the dumpster. I'm trying to remember the character's name. Um, the pizza boy um, character. And he was just, he's underneath the dumpster. He's underneath the dumpster. And then, you know, you have to wait a whole season to find out what it was. Um, but yeah, I, I can see I can see that. I could definitely see why there is a liking to figure out how you're going to get someone out of it. Um, so let's talk more about your writing in particular, because we could we could we could talk more about some of these books. But your approach to writing in general, um, again, you you do you do have a tendency of writing a lot of humor in your work, which is always good. Uh, you know, personally, I love I like good it. humor, especially in, um, very similar to the Taika Waititi approach, where you 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 just put you just add enough seriousness to it, but with that humor where you could get a giggle off or something or or something like that, sure. um, which was I was what I was enjoying about reading the book that in particular. I've read some of your other books, but it's been a while since I read them, so of course I can't remember them all off the top of my head. Um, but talk to me about the approach of writing in in general for you, and what do you do to do it? Obviously, you, you write full script. I take it. I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's a pretty similar process, regardless of the project yet at the same time every project is unique so it's like you uh you know you have to find a way into a story like there's got to be something a character or a scene or an image that you find really compelling and you just have to build the rest of the world around it you know i i've found that it's best not to rush things i have a minimum number of pages i write uh, a day which is four i tend to write dialogue first and then add the scene descriptions later. So it's the characters' voices and their emotions and their desires that are driving the scene, not some, you know, artificial imposition from the visuals. Uh, but the visuals come and they're, they tend to, you know, come rather easily wrapping around the, the actual scenes of the characters. Um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a living. 
<laughs> now, I, I've I've heard this from other writers that they they write according to who their artist is. Do you do you do that sometimes? Where you know who's your artist, and then you say to yourself, "Okay, I know this guy. He loves right. cars, so I'm going to make sure there's right. plenty of cars in the story." Well, you know, yes and no. So when you're my age and you've been doing this as long as I as as you you have, you tend to be working with the same people over and over again. So I guess that's true. Like Ryan Dunlavy and I have done a million books together, so it's very easy. He's he's literally who I'm working with right now, today, this week. Um. Uh, in professional work for hire situations, you actually very rarely know who you are, who your artist is, uh, unless you are, you know, a top earner at the time. Mm -hmm. So it can be dangerous to write only for the artist you're going to be working with because a, a lot of times you don't know who that person is B a lot of times that person gets replaced. Mm -hmm. And so you, I think ideally in a perfect world, you and the artist would be sort of joined at the hip, like Siamese twins. But unfortunately the, the actual practical realities of the business are the script is going to go to whoever needs work. Mm -hmm. And at the time you turn it in, you don't always know who that's going to be. Mm -hmm. So, I, so the, my next question is you're, you're giving a character have you ever have you ever had a situation where you looked at a character, let's let's just say a character like Spider Man, and you say, okay, what could I do to Spider Man? Are you are you thinking of ways to make Spider Man's life more difficult, or are you thinking of what's the best thing for Spider Man at this point? And it doesn't have to be Spider Man; it could be any character in particular, you know. Well, you know, there's an old saying that happy people make for bad drama. So if you're not making the hero's life difficult, you're not really doing your job. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people might think they want to see Spider-Man having a good time or Batman having a good time, but they don't really. They're going to get bored pretty quick. <laughs> they want to see characters, any characters, heroes, uh, protagonists of more slice of life things regardless. Uh, overcoming challenges and being challenged and overcoming obstacles. And that means, you know, like I said, putting them through their paces. So yeah, I, I absolutely come up with ways to make any character's life difficult. As I said before, you know, in the zombie context, I'm interested in putting people in very high pressure situations. That's, that's what interests and excites me as a writer. So now when you, when we're thinking about superhero comics, it's one thing, right? It's like um, hero, villain stories, supporting characters. But then you're also doing these, you know, nonfiction books. So what's the difference between writing a superhero classic versus a nonfiction historical piece? What, what, how do you take the approach? Obviously, it's a two different approaches. But how do you do it in, in your mind? I mean, it's not, th I, it is different. Uh, doing nonfiction, I find, is much harder because you've got to get it right. So, mm -hmm. uh in fiction, you just can make stuff up and there's very few people to contradict you, though you always will have someone on Twitter being like, Spider-Man wouldn't say that, you know, or something like that. But, you know, when you're dealing with actual facts, it's a different situation. Uh, I'm a really good explainer. I really like doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, I like coming up with factoids that people and taking an angle of things that people might not have seen before. So it's a, it's a different muscle. But what's fun is that if I get sick of writing nonfiction, I can go and write fiction and the fiction I've got to do instead. And if 
fiction is being a drag that day, I can switch gears and write nonfiction instead. So it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's good to have a and also to be like a working writer and to be a working uh, creative person. It's always best to have a very diverse portfolio. So you know, I'm doing prose novels, I'm doing nonfiction, I'm doing fiction, and I'm doing work for higher comics. I'm doing creator owned comics. I'm doing kickstarters. You know, it's the whole gamut. Awesome. So let's go into talking a little bit more about those nonfiction books, right? The sure. comic book comics, um, comic book history of animation. Um, I, I was reading comic book comics. Um, that was, and I've ended right before action. So new action fund. So we're, we're um, where I'm okay. at right now is no we're, we're going to get into Superman. I'm sure. But you did mention information about, you know, Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel. Um, right. What was the process for you in gathering all that information? Some of it we knew, some of it we didn't know. So how long did it take you to actually get, um, as in me? <laughs> okay. Because I knew about Yellow Kid and things like that. I knew about that. I mean, I wouldn't claim to be like an investigative journalist. Uh, I just read a lot. You know, I, I was really into comics history for a long time. So I actually had a lot of like a personal library to kind of build up. And it just, when we were finishing action philosophers and it was successful, as I said, when we wanted to keep doing nonfiction comics and so we were kind of like, what other subjects should we do? And we just sort of ended up on the idea of, well, I don't think anyone's ever tried to do comic book history as a comic. Mm-hmm. Um, probably because they were afraid of getting sued, mm-hmm. but Ryan and I are stupid. And so just did it. <laughs> but, but you, you, you made sure comic. You made you made sure in the first few pages that everybody was copyrighted and everybody was right, right. exactly. And then right. you mm-hmm. even you even threw an editorial piece into it where it says, "If I screwed up, just go to this guy or something like that." I was re- right. I saw that right, which, which yes. I thought was funny. It, it, it felt like reading reading the the book of Chronicles in the Bible where you just read the genealogy for three chapters, um, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> something like that. So, but it was funny because you got to see all these characters that you you didn't even think about back then that they were, you know, very important cartoon figures of that time. And it was nice that you took the liberty of at least giving credit where credit's due, even though it was a lot of work, I'm sure, to get this person's trademarked by that person, that person, this this person's estate. Some of it is easy, right? Spawn, Todd McFarley. But some of them might have not been so easy. So that's what I was talking about. But in, in particular, to those books, and in particular, I, I noticed the story between um, Flasher, Mark Flasher, and and Walt Disney, and the interest behind it. Um, you know, what can you tell me a little bit about when you learning a little bit about that particular history between those two, and the kind of like the, they're competing, but was it friendly? <laughs> Well, I, competition, I think, despite what we want to think, is rarely friendly. Uh, usually, if it's successful, there's a lot of real emotion behind it. And obviously, we expand on this relationship quite a bit in another one of the books you have up on screen, Complex History of Animation, in stores now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the interesting thing about Disney and Fleischer is that Fleischer, uh, Disney started out as sort of the wunderkind of animation. He was one of the first people to do sound cartoons. He was one of the first people to... Uh, he had a really successful character in Mickey Mouse, uh, and he very early on kind of he was uh, developed one of the first systems for color in cartoons. So he was a big innovator. Um, 
but he spent so much money on his craft that his studio was constantly struggling and rarely turned a profit. And he, he sort of embodied, he very early on kind of adopted the kind of uncle Walt, you know, family friendly. He was from uh, Kansas city, right? The heartland of America. Max Fleischer on their hand was like a lot, frankly, a lot of comics creators. In fact, a lot of com- early comic creators worked for Fleischer studios while they were in times square. In Manhattan, like Jack Kirby is probably the most famous person who got got his start as an animator for Popeye on, on Max Fleischer. But Bob Kane and a bunch of other people also worked for Fleischer. But uh, uh, Fleischer was sort of the exact opposite of Disney. He was he was an immigrant. He was Jewish. He he had a middle class background while Walt does. And he grew up very poor. Um and his shorts were all very kind of risque. They could get very risque. His first big hit character was Betty Boop, who had a sex appeal that wasn't, you know, was a bit controversial even even when she was that popular. And then eventually he uh, started beating Disney with Popeye. He licensed Popeye started out as a comic strip called Thimble Theater, and Fleischer licensed his, uh, um. Uh, you know, the rights to make cartoons about him. And what's sort of fascinating about Popeye is supposedly part of the inspiration for Superman was Siegel and Schuster watching Popeye cartoons and going, Oh, why don't we, why don't we do that straight? You know, why don't we do that with a serious character? And so they merged it with John Carter of Mars and some other characters and came up with Superman. Um, but I mean, ultimately, you know, Fleischer turned a quick buck. His because his cartoons are much cheaper than Disney's, but but Disney ultimately won because he invested all this money in Snow White, which was the first significant. There was actually a, a feature length cartoon. It's often called the first feature length cartoon. It is. It isn't. But it was the first giant successful one that sort of made people realize we should invest in Hollywood, or excuse me, we, Hollywood realized that we should invest in animation, and you know, animation. You know, they say animation is the main driver of all streaming services, you know, so it's 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 incredibly popular still today. Yeah. So, yeah. Based on what what I was reading is that when Snow White came out, it was the epitome of what you would call a blockbuster hit at that time. Right. Even yep. though blockbusters was much later on with Jaws, I think it was um, in particular. So, what you know, and of course, we've heard the story of- grossing film of its time. Uh, yeah. Up until that point, which was up 1947. To, yeah, and then it was Gone with the Wind. That was the next one to follow. Right, um, so that was two years later. So it didn't last long, but for two years there, Snow White, highest grossing film of all time. Yeah, and for an animated film, too, that's a big deal, especially even sure. afterwards, animation. Well, I never really hit that that level until much, much later. Um. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in terms of like overall box office, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. And, you know... Disney was so Disney sort of cornered the brand there that it that it wasn't really until television came along that there was even really a significant. Well, I mean, not even you know it, so you know it really sort of drove Fleischer Studios in the ground was was their studio Paramount drove them to produce a feature film to compete with Snow White and that ended up bankrupting essentially the drive to that ended up bankrupting the the Fleischers along with lots of other. Mm-hmm. labor problems and yeah and they got the license to do superman and although those superman cartoons are beloved and they look great they basically were they ran the studio in the ground because they cost so much to make and so mm-hmm. on yeah those, those, those particular cartoons I, I love watching them the only thing the only thing that i missed about them was that it, it never had true villains that we were familiar with like the luthors and the the brainiacs and things like that but 
you know, they had their share of villains. Well, that yeah, were but cool. don't forget those, those cartoons came out. The only character that, you know, I'm not even sure Luthor was that big by 1942, 1943. I don't think think Brainiac was introduced until the 50s. Yeah. So So a lot of those those supervillain characters, you know, arguably this is a whole other tangent, but arguably the biggest villain of early Superman, and that wasn't the cartoons, was Lois. Mm -hmm. Because she was constantly trying to find out. So many of those early Superman stories revolved her trying to figure out who who he was you know? yeah, and getting herself in trouble half of the times. It, it's those, those, those comics are sort of rom-coms with superpowers, you know, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this, the one that I haven't read, but I want to read and that's the anime one. So you had the, okay. the book on animation. Anime is such a big thing. Like you have it written down. Anime conquers the world. So today people love their anime. Right. Uh, and right now, you know, in particular, you got shows like My Hero Academia. You have um, Demon Slayer, which is huge right now. And other shows, JoJo's Bizarre Adventures, all those particular animes were a big thing. I remember growing up as a kid, um, we had anime, but we never we, we didn't have as much as as today. Um, I grew up watching Voltron. Gotcha, man! Battle of the Planets, and um, Akira is always a, a all-time favorite of mine. Star um, Blazers, aka yeah. Battleship Yamato. Yeah, Star and Battle even even um, even when you see cartoons like GI Joe and Transformers, they did come from that world. Those are many of those artists were sure. Japanese-based artists. You, you could see it. You could see it. You could definitely see it, especially with Transformers in particular. That it was very based on you know Gundam and things like that um robotech i think of of robotech and stuff like that so talk to me a little bit about your research when it came to anime in particular well i mean you know i i just think it was high quality like i don't think there's like that much like uh you know i don't know that there's that much uh more to it than that you know i mean the other thing is that uh it was incredibly popular in Japan and you can sort of think about why Japanese culture in particular is drawn to drawn entertainment, you know, manga is much bigger there still, even though, you know, in America comics are having a bit of a renaissance, you know, the popularity of anime both there and here kind of dwarfs everything else. Um, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that like um, kanji, the alphabet of East Asia, Chinese, and, and and Japanese characters are themselves kind of pictograms, so I mm-hmm. so their brains may be a little bit more wired mm-hmm. towards uh, communicating through pictures than people in the West who have more uh, era, you know, you know the the, the Latinized uh, alphabets a bit more. Um, a lot of it may have to do with the fact that that Japan was so devastated during World War II, so they didn't have a lot of the technology that we had. Uh, Japan, Japanese households got televisions much later mm-hmm. than American households did, simply because the the they didn't couldn't afford them. You know, it was a it was it was a really devastated country that you know we now we think of them as, as this great economic mm-hmm. powerhouse, but it took them a while to ramp up to that after the mm-hmm. devastation of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think you know I just think that that that. The Occam's razor of it all is just it's extremely high quality. You know, Th- that's sort of why Hollywood movies um, uh, swept the world is that there was a lot of myth making involved. Um, and uh, 
particularly people like uh, Miyazaki have criticized um, the obsession with robots and what are called mecha over there as being this obsession with the uh, of Japanese culture having been so humiliated in warfare uh, that it's this yearning for for power, you know, in much the same way the American superhero myth has sort of taken over the whole world. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that same power dynamics going on in some of the science fiction, Mm -hmm. um, particularly things like Akira, you know, and uh, what am I playing? Ghost in the Machine. A lot of other like science fiction Mm -hmm. stuff are kind of, you know, super superpowers dressed up under different, you know. Yeah. Full metal alchemists. Yeah. And, and what about Kaiju in particular? Kaiju, Godzilla, that kind of stuff. Sure, same thing, right? Is is just it's it's almost like an inversion of the of the mecha trope, right? Which is you're helpless against the giant creature that's stomping everything. Mm-hmm. Um the nuclear sure. gamma radiation, all that fun stuff. Nuclear fears and all that stuff. Yeah. So um, I think a lot of it's American kids liking stuff that that looks foreign, that looks alien, to freak out their parents. I think that has a lot, of, <laughs> you know. Like I just, you know, it's like rock and roll music to a certain degree. But uh, but you know, before your parents grew up, also on rock and roll music. But uh, yeah, no, I just think it's it's high quality stuff that people can really get into. You know, the the, the manga, the 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 you know the other thing is that is that. Uh, you know, people in animation are not treated well. That <laughs> don't mean to bring the bring the party down, but particularly in Japan, they're 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 overworked and paid nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even a lot of that is also very true for the the uh, manga, where a lot of the artists have these studios of underpaid assistants sitting there banging banging all the pages. So part of it is that just there's so much material because the labor conditions are so wretched they can just crank this stuff out at a much higher rate, you know, while in France they're, you know, you're lucky to get a new 52 page album from your favorite creator every, you know, yeah. year, two years, three years, whatever. Uh, and in Japan, they really try to feed the beast, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of human casualties to that, that we don't talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you do see those books just being knocked down and they're, they're again, like you said, they're not like, like our typical 22 page comic they're they're volumes they're sets that sure. come in and every there's time I see pages them, there, there's often less detailed mm-hmm. panels not always but but a much more fluid storytelling mm-hmm. you know and yeah. you know a lot of a lot of american creators just love it to death i love manga like my mm-hmm. favorite current my favorite comic book creator right now is junji ito i think is a total genius the great mm-hmm. horror manga artist awesome all right let's let's move to some of your newer stuff here that's Jennifer Blood, and then let's talk about Di- Die No Might Lives. But let's start first right. with Jennifer's Blood. Jennifer Blood. I, I kept saying Jennifer's Blood, but it's Jennifer's, Jennifer's Blood, like Jennifer's body. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what I thought of when I first saw it too. I really thought of her. <laughs> well, uh, Jennifer Blood was created by the oft-mentioned Garth Ennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was sort of this housewife vigilante character. Um. And she was famously killed off in her original series, but I've brought her back. Is she a ghost? Is she a zombie? Is it, did she not actually die when she appeared to die? You have to read it to find out. She goes to a suburb full of mafiosi to, uh, 
basically exactor revenge. Um, it's a bunch of like if you've ever seen Goodfellas, you know that place that cul-de-sac that Ray, Ray Liotta retires to at the end of when he's in the witness protection program at the end of Goodfellas. It, imagine that, but it's all mobsters under the witness protection program. So sadly, they do not have witness protection from Jennifer Blood. <laughs> Who shows well, up and infiltrates down? So she started as a housewife who was a vigilante. Now she is a vigilante infiltrating a suburb of mobsters, and uh, this uh, and that's a successful series. We've got a bunch more coming. The seventh issue, I think, is coming out. Yeah, the seventh issue is coming up. It's like a graveyard in cover. A days, okay. I have not seen the cover. I will take yeah. the word for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then as I we were saying, Dynamite, the current Dynamite series. That's actually the second series you're showing the cover to mm-hmm. with. Ash Williams, so we're using a lot of bunch of dynamite characters. Um, so Army of Darkness is featured pretty heavily in Dynamite Lives. Uh, the current book is called Dynamite Never Dies. Title I'm very proud of. Uh, <laughs> and that, and so, and this is Tarzan. It's Tarzan versus zombie dinosaurs on Mars. It's freaking awesome. Tarzan with zombies. That sounds fun. And dinosaur zombies. <laughs> dinosaur zombies. That, that sounds even more fun. You got to get that Resident Evil vibe to it with the dogs and all that fun stuff that goes along with it. Well, well. If, it, if Dynamite gets the Resident Evil license, I'll be right on it. I don't even I'll know be, who owns the Resident I'll Evil license right that. now. Yeah, that's great. All right. So lastly, what what's more? Uh, what more stuff are you working on? Are you you working on another volume for the comic book history? I've seen being that you mentioned Ryan. Uh, no, we're doing a book for the. Uh, middle schoolers of New York city called action activists. That's about getting kids more involved in, uh, you know, the communities and politics and stuff. And so we're doing the third version of that, which is all about immigration. And so I'm working out on this, this week, I'm currently doing a Jennifer blood spinoff series that I can't mention. Uh, but I'm sure that'll be announced soon. That's very exciting. Uh, I'm doing a Rick and Morty, a Rick and Morty book coming out from Oni, which I love Rick and Morty. And definitely. And that was about one of my favorite characters in the Rick and Morty verse. Mm-hmm. Um, what else am I thinking? I must be doing something. a novel coming out that I've got to do rewrites on that I'm excited about a prose novel. Uh, another nonfiction book coming out. That's not by Ryan. We're going to get the contract on. It's been a very busy 2022. Let's just put it that way. I've got another dynamite thing coming out. I got a lot of things in, in the works over there uh, that I'm excited about. Uh, but unfortunately, not anything I can really talk about here because it's a lot of it has not been announced yet, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be making any shows anytime soon? Uh, you mean like uh, King Kirby, our podcast mm-hmm. about the life of Jack Kirby that you can go see at Broadway Podcast Network? Mm-hmm. Google Broadcast. <laughs> Go into iTunes, friends, and, <laughs> and and search for King Kirby and listen to it. It's pretty awesome. It's the original uh, New York Times critics pick Broadway uh, off Broadway off 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 Broadway. So off Broadway, in fact, it was in Brooklyn cast. <laughs> well, Broadway's everywhere, isn't it? No, yeah. it's very I'm specific. In, it's very. I'm specific. in the Bronx, and it's Broadway in the Bronx. That's true, but when they <laughs> theater people are very persnickety about it, so I do not want to. My wife, my my lovely playwright white wife. Crystal Skillman will give me a hard time if I screw that up. But yes, we are working on a new show. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely want to check that out. Um, let's see. Are you going to do any cons anytime soon? Uh, yes. The uh, oh, hey, hey, James, how's it going? 
Yeah, James is actually. I used to work with James at one point. Oh, very cool. Yeah, uh, I remember James. Uh, I am going to be appearing with Ryan Dunleavy at TCAF uh, in Toronto, which is the Toronto Comics Arts Festival. That's the third weekend in June, I think. That mm-hmm. is currently my only definitive, absolutely will be there appearance. Yeah. Any any um San Diego, New York. Any thoughts about going to those? Uh, I've done every New York Comic Con except for 2020 when there was none because the pandemic. So I have no doubt I will be there again this year. Okay, you and I are the same. <laughs> I've been to every oh. single one. So you've been to the Fire Hazard one. Yes, that was the first one. That was the first one. I remember that one quite. Yeah, I well. got trapped. I got trapped outside my panel because the fire marshals <laughs> shut it down. Yep. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get there inside a lot earlier, and I realized I can't leave. If I leave, it'll be a bad idea. Nope. <laughs> That was that was definitely an interesting day, but I did get a chance to, to meet Stan Lee, so that was the fun part about yeah, that. There you go. And I got a signed copy of uh, First Appearance of Adam Warlock. I always point out, you would point out something, I'm pointing out that one right there. Fantastic 467, so it's oh, right cool. there hanging up. I got, it, nice. I got it graded that same day. Him. Yes. I can't wait to see him. He's my favorite. He's actually my favorite character. I, I don't know why, I just love him. Um, cool. Thank you so much for doing this. I yeah, really appreciate no it. All right. Um, before we let you go, are there any other place where people could find you? I know you have an Instagram, you have a Facebook, all that fun stuff. I always, I'll go ahead and post some of that information in the bottom of the screen. Um, what people, where people could find you. Obviously, you mentioned your Jack Kirby podcast, which I definitely yep. want to listen to. And there's, I, I did see it. Cool, cool. Yeah, there's lots of great links at fredvanlady.com, and if you want to know about what I'm doing next, uh, just sign up for the newsletter on the homepage of fredvanlady.com. I'm not one of these spammy people. I send out a newsletter about every six months. You will not not exactly be deluged for me, so go go over and sign up. It's more like a journal, then. It's like a journal instead of a newsletter. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's I'm terrible. It's like it's like writing my mother. You know, you're calling my mother. It's it does not happen enough. Well, thank you, Fred. There you have it, guys. That was my interview with Fred Van Lenti. Um, go check out his stuff at fredvanlenti.com. Going to let you guys go, and I'm going to see you next time on the Izzyverse. Take care, guys. Bye.